Daniel chapter 3. Uh, it's, it's interesting. This is my favorite story in the Bible, and I'm not sure why. Somebody asked me why, and I'm like, that's a great question. I have no idea. It just is my favorite story in the Bible. Um, but as I was preparing for this teaching, when I was reading it, you get almost caught in how beautiful the story is and the language of the text. You're like, oh, this is just a really beautiful, poetic story. But I want to remind us that what we're reading here is not just a beautiful story. It's actually history. We're actually reading an account. I was in, in all of the different manuscripts I was studying and looking into. In the last uh, two years, they've found some Babylonian artifacts that had names and things on it. And some of the names of these characters are actually in those artifacts inscribed as being temple, uh, uh, being guys that were employed by the government of Babylon. So there's a history fact to it. And I want us to think about this. 600 BC, it's Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, one of the most feared, successful military, military leaders of all time. When we read about it, we're just looking at this snapshot, but we got to think about what would it be like to be led by a guy who had made his name on the battlefield? It means he was really ruthless, not, not just intelligent as a leader. It means he was a guy that everybody in his kingdom understood the rules. When he speaks, it happens, period. And when it doesn't happen, you die. Now, I... I like the book of Daniel, really enjoy it. There's some, there's some good laughter for me in the book of Daniel. How many have ever watched the movie Shrek? For me, Nebuchadnezzar, I always picture Lord Farquaad in, that's in Shrek. Because he uses this phrase, everything he does is a threat to tear you limb from limb and destroy your houses. But there's some, it's kind of humorous in here, but I want you to get a, I want us to wrap our heads around what these three young men that we're going to read about, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, wrap our heads around the reality they were facing. It wasn't a pretty story for them. It was life. They were facing a guy who said, if you don't do this, you die. I want to dive in. We're going to read through the story. Uh, we're going to read all 30 verses together, um, and then we're going to come back and talk about it. But before we do that, I want to invite you to do something. While we're reading it, I want to ask you to think about things that jump out to you, phrases that jump out in your mind, things that you're like, oh, what does God, what does God highlight for you? Because then as we come back to the story, I'm going to ask, hey, what jumped out? What did you see? What do you think? And we'll do this more as a classroom setting where there's participation allowed. Look at your neighbor and go, well, I've never been to church where they let me talk. But, but then we'll work on that together, and then I'm going to share a couple things that I see. And does that work? You good? Yeah. How many just got super nervous because I said you might have to talk? <laughs> you don't have to. We're just going to ask. <laughs> My wife, like, don't call on me. <laughs> okay. So King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messengers to the princes, prefects, governors, advisors, counselors, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. When all these, these officials had arrived and were standing before the image King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, a herald shouted out, People of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all the other instruments... Bow to the ground and worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to do so will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshiped the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But some astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Long live the king. You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of musical instruments. 
That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the provinces of Babylon. They have defied your majesty by refusing to serve your gods and to worship the gold statue you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? I will give you one more chance. If you bow down and worship the statue I have made, when you hear the sound of the musical instruments, all will be well. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. What god will be able to rescue you from my power then? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, your majesty can be sure. We will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. He commanded the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully clothed. And because the king in his anger demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames leaped out and killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell down into the roaring flames. But suddenly, as he was watching, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, they said, we did indeed, your majesty. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire. They aren't even hurt by the flames, and the fourth looks like a divine being. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. The princes, prefects, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their head was singed, and their clothing was not scorched. They did not even smell of smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be crushed into heaps of rubble. There is no god who can rescue like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. What led them into it was a Willingness to live by the scriptures, and I want to call us to that same thing, to be a people that say, I'm going to live what the scriptures say. Well, I don't know what they say. Wow, we could spend all day on that, question, that statement. Church, we have to become a people that study the text. We have to be a people that take on our own responsibility, which is, I am to be a person that knows the word. It's not my friend's job, my pastor's job, my church's job to teach me the scriptures. It is my job to learn the scriptures. From a biblical worldview, the way we come together is supposed to be a place where we come to talk about the scriptures and encourage each other. Now, Paul will teach the scriptures regularly. Paul, would, Paul was known for teaching so long that a guy who was sitting on a window fell asleep and died. Paul taught for hours at a time. 
what I love is Paul will walk downstairs because guy fell out of a second story, lands on his back, dies. It's a true story, happened. Paul walks out, doesn't apologize for being boring at all. Lays hands on him, heals him, and goes back to teaching. <laughs> what led them through the situation was different than what led them into it. And here's why I think that's important. A lot of times, can we use the scriptures to go through situations? Yes. But I think that there's something else they used to go through the situation. And it's hidden in this statement that we highlight it. The God whom we serve is able, but even if he doesn't. They weren't trusting God for an outcome. They were trusting God in the process. And they were laying their lives in front of God and saying this. Whatever comes out of this, I'm never going to let go of trusting you. I'm not removing my trust. I'm not removing my commitment, my love, my affection. And we have to become a people that don't need God to do something for us, for us to love him. Because if we aren't that people, every situation we go through becomes an evidence of his love. We're looking for evidence of his goodness in, in the way our situations go down. But biblically, where Moses has the revelation of God's goodness was in the place of personal encounter. We are to learn about his goodness in the secret place. We're not ever looking for the evidence of his goodness in how he handles our situations. We recognize as believers that our lives are in his hands. He's using us in our day and in our time to reveal his name and his nature to the world around us. Therefore, he can do whatever he wants with us. His goodness is unquestionable. That's what I love about what they say. We know him. We've spent time with him. We love him. He doesn't have to do this for us to love him. Whatever he chooses, we're good. I think what led them through that situation was an unwavering commitment to the goodness of God. We sang it this morning, you are good. Isn't it an incredibly powerful phrase to say? When you sing it, you're like, why is this working? I don't know. Like I say, you are good, you're good, whoa. And I'm like, yeah, and something's going on inside of me. Because he is. And we have to become a people that repent of our tendency to evaluate how things work for us to see if God loves us. I put in for a job, I didn't get the job. God must be mad at me. Maybe there was somebody more qualified. God loves you. He's for you, not against you. You're a child of the king. Your circumstances are not intended to inform his goodness. Your encounter is. When Moses says, I want to know you, the scripture says God's goodness passed in front of him. So the way God chooses to reveal his nature to us is by teaching us about his goodness. Let's stand.